0: Justin. I'm a Scalcom librarian. My pronouns are he and they.
1: I'm Sadie. I work IT at a public library and my pronouns are they them.
2: And I'm Jay. I'm a music library director and my pronouns are he him.
0: Speedrun, we got news. Finland, I'm on to you. Finland's in the news.
2: Finland, Finland, Finland.
0: I posted about this, and then like four days later, a, a big account, which only repost news, reposted, it. And then I went and started retweeting that, and I was like, fuck you. I was the one who had the Google alert for prisons, prison labor and universities, and that got picked up. This got picked up by it. But Finland, there are click workers, and you'll never guess where they are. Prison. So Yay. they need people to do <laughs> click work. Uh oh. Oh. They need people to do click work in Finnish, and since people since Finland didn't get on the colonizing game and spread their language around to places where they can now get people to do the work for a dollar an hour, they just use slaves to do it. Uh, sorry, prisoners with jobs that they totally get paid for. Yeah, they get paid a dollar thirty,
2: totally um, ever in their lives. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is pretty good reporting from Wired. Quite honestly. It didn't fall for the propaganda that was uh, pushed at them that this was rehabilitative. It kind of said at a couple of points uncritically that this was preparing people for jobs, but they were like, there's no click work jobs. And the people who are getting trained just sort of stared blankly while they were having career prospects explained to them. I enjoyed the, uh, the one researcher that the author sits down with. Uh, the researcher says, comparing the money I get as a researcher and what the prisoner gets for their prison labor, it doesn't make sense. There you go. It doesn't make sense. That's, that's the end of the argument. So uh, he says it's good for people. You can only do it three hours a day. And at the very end, it's like uh, Metroc is the name of the company. And at the very end, it's uh, it's saying, oh, yeah, we should expand the prison labor project to other countries. It's something we need to explore. So there you go. No perverse incentives. Definitely doesn't cause conflicts of interest. So news. Whole
2: episode of news.
0: <laughs> well, this is a, a research episode. I just used news because there's nothing else. But we're now doing a full episode of... What's well, it's a museum. It's goth this time. This, we're going to talk about Motor Museum, a museum in Pennsylvania that people like. So we covered this before, it, I don't know, a couple months ago, probably back in... It was the Desk Set episode. Yeah. Yeah, so this would have been May.
2: God, that was May when we did Desk Set? I thought it was like June
0: or July. Oh No, it's June. It was June. Yeah, yeah. When, the, when the Inquirer uh, article came out, that was June. So... We initially reported on this when it came out in the Inquirer in June. I have been tracking it ever since to see when we would have enough to talk about for a full episode. So I've just had my Google Alert running. I'm going to put all of the articles that I've tracked in the notes. Reporting that got picked up by the Inquirer piece that we originally talked about in June was from WHYY Reporting. In May 2023, uh, about a living donor to the Mutter Museum, Robert Pendarvis, who gave his acromegaly heart to Mutter after a transplant, he was upset that the video uh, about his donation had been taken down. The physical display was still public, but all of the museum's online exhibits and YouTube videos were put private. Um, basically, from what I've read, the original thought was that the, the original reporting kind of... Wasn't clear if they'd been deleted or not, but subsequent reporting was pretty clear that it had all just been taken down and made not public, and it was going to be restored after a review. So then the inquiry piece came out that we talked about. It gained traction. Robert Hicks, a major donor and a consulting scholar, resigns and cuts Mutter out of his will over CEO Myra Irons and Mutter executive director Kate Quinn, who started in September 2022. So that was late last year. He cited admin shakeups of the last six months, but both Quinn and Irons had been there longer than that. So I think it was that series of resignations that we talked about, which we were not sure if it was churn, uh, like regular churn, and it seems more or less like it is, uh, just like typical academic kind of churn of administration because the people who were coming in and out were like the head of development which handles donations and other sort of purely administrative roles yeah so the main issue was taking down the Mutter's online presence backing off programming and questioning the appropriateness of popular Mutter exhibits like the one in teratology which examines fetal deformities and abnormalities and displays several fetuses in jars There was a particular line that got a lot of pushback, which was to make the mutter a contemporary institution focused on health and well-being, not death, uh, which was not direct quote. This was one of my critiques of the Inquirer piece was every time I wanted a direct quote, it wasn't a direct quote. And the direct quotes that I got were kind of useless. So it's been a while to get any kind of interesting, straightforward information out of mutter. And in the reporting, so that's why we've had to wait to actually do this. The takedowns could also be viewed as a way to control who would go poking around to find remains that needed to be repatriated because some remains had been discovered on the Mutter's digital exhibits and maybe YouTube channels, and which led to people making inquiries of Mutter, and then led to repatriation. So a cynical reading of this is that taking those down stops the external scrutiny so that they can control this in-house with their own review rather than not having control over it and people going, hey, wait a minute, what's going on there? And then going to the news or whatever, which is honestly, as an admin, I mean, kind of a straightforward decision to make uh, is do it in-house because why would you wait for other people to figure out your mistakes for you? But it did have a uh, a lot of critique of these takedowns. (laughs) A little bit later, as a side note, the Wall Street Journal had a Piece come out that called it cancel culture coming for mutter and was trying to reframe this as like the woke baristas are coming to to take away your mutter museum. But then it says the woke leaders are anxious to sanitize it. The guy's called Stanley Goldfarb, uh, which doesn't sound like a real name. He was a former director of the college, and he wrote that the museum's new woke leaders appeared eager to cleanse the institution of anything uncomfortable. So I don't know who's who's the woke here—is it people critiquing it, or the leaders, or whatever? I wasn't. Clear. I feel like
2: our, our our initial sort of conclusion back when we first talked about this—that like ev- everyone's kind of wrong. And that, like, it's good that they're like doing what they're doing, but they're also being a little reactive um, and missing their own mission. It's like they're going, like, they're overcorrecting in, in a lot of ways. So it's like everybody's wrong. <laughs> there's bad decisions. There's bad decisions being made everywhere, and everyone's got wrong opinions, probably including us.
0: Yeah. Well, the thing I think. Which is, I I predicted that we wouldn't be able to do this until fall, and we literally God, just got the pieces out.
2: We're always so right about everything.
0: I mean, yeah. I hate being right. The reason was, is I figured that's when people are going to be able to be on committees and stuff, and then they'll announce that the committees are going to start meeting. So that's how long, if they're not going to be able to get everyone in the room until like all the academics are back from summer and they can actually put these review committees together. So that's why I figured nothing was going to happen over the summer. And then a couple of days ago some more paper, some some more reporting came out that yeah, they are going to, but we'll get to that. But yeah, I mean, it could be an, you could read it as an overcorrection or I mean, it was maybe just a calculation of we're going to get a certain amount of backlash for taking everything down, but it's better than continuing to do nothing at once. But
2: yeah, I think I agree with at least one of the conclusions of the petition that Kate um that um Dr. Irons is perhaps ill suited at least with like mission ideas of like what the museum is. Like I feel like the a lot of people in the admin are maybe just ill suited for being admin of this particular collection and museum, but that what they're doing is things that should be done. But then they're like doing it bad (laughs) and they kind of hate all of the patrons of this museum and what the museum is.
0: Yeah, it's definitely taking the museum in a new direction. But I mean, museums do have to change. Like, I don't disagree.
2: Yeah. Like, a lot of this, I'm like, yes, this is correct. (laughs)
0: Like, yeah, I mean... Things change. Like the, the museum has not always been that way and it won't be the same thing in the future. Like, you know, exhibits contextualize things and people got mad about that as elitist. But it's like, no, I mean, it's just that's what their job is, is to contextualize things for for visitors and patrons and researchers.
2: That's the whole p- fucking point of museums.
1: I was about to say, do you, do you want a do you want a museum or do you want Ripley's Believe It or Not?
2: Yeah. Right. Or do you want a museum, or do you just want something for students of this college and not the public? Because I remember that was one of the big things of them like bemoaning that that this is a collection open to the public and not just students of the college.
0: Yeah, because well, they were basically saying we wouldn't have to work as hard if it was only medical students because they're not the general public. Was kind of their point, which was a stupid point to make and I shouldn't have said it because that's not the situation they're in. Yeah. But they were saying like originally this collection was only for medical like professionals.
2: Maybe that's the problem. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or one of it's them. It's definitely, you know? yeah, I don't know. There's definitely like medical collections that we get where it's like we can't open this to the public because there's like a personally identifiable information in here, but there's nothing wrong with it being an internal collection for students of a course Yeah, that, you know, because that falls within like the original permissions that the, the records were taken under. So it's just like a difference of ethics of like, can this be public or can this be like used in teaching medical students? Cause usually when you ask like someone, can I write up this report to be public? Can I write up your case to be published? Or can I take a photo to teach with, you know, that's the consent you got at the moment. And then later they come to the library and go, can we make this like a big database? And we go, no, because that wasn't the terms under which you got the information, right? You said this was for teaching. We can't put it publicly. So
2: there's actually, um, so there's this documentary called three identical strangers. Have I mentioned this ever on the show? I think I like wanted to do an episode on it at some point. Um, yeah, I know go- about this. I yeah. think. Yeah, where it was, like, this set of triplets that were, like, separated at birth as yeah. part of this, like, nature versus nurture study. And this, you know, this is why we have IRB kids, you know? People were just doing shit. People are just doing shit. But, like, the records of that study, like, the notes of that study are in the archives at is it Yale? It was Stanford somewhere, but they're um, like sealed until a certain time, even though the subjects of that study are adults and want to see what medical notes were like written about them as like children, but they like weren't allowed because of like the terms of like how this collection like went into this archive and everything. I think they eventually did get permission. It was just after the documentary Came out, but like, you know, libraries and archives, we are very like culpable in this sort of patient confidentiality thing and ethics around what we keep sealed and what we don't and why, you know?
0: Yeah, I did a whole like thing about this because we always get people wanting to do oral histories with undocumented people. And I go, don't do that (laughs) because we can't we can't make it public.
2: (laughs) Yes, I, uh, I use that example now when I talk about like archival silence Um, and how sometimes it's a good thing, you know?
0: Yeah, we basically took... What we did was we imagined the worst-case scenarios for undocumented oral histories. And it's like, okay, let's do, like, digital forensics to these computers. Like, don't use your regular work computer to process it. Like, we really got, like, paranoid. Like, what if someone did digital forensics on these hard drives? What if someone went looking through the de-identified things? Could they re-identify data? Um, How do you collect the data? We went all the way down to like copyright. Like you have to transfer copyright to the university so that we can take it down and issue DMCAs if it starts circulating on external websites, because we want the power to do that. So we would like add in if, you know, if, if someone is anonymous, we want the copyright because we can't then verify who the copy to the original person is because we're going to destroy those records. So we're not going to know who donated that material. So they need to transfer ownership to us. Which is true for a lot of things like the transfer of ownership, but now kind of the new thing is like people retain their copyright, but they give us like a license to use it. It's kind of the newer way of doing digital collections, but in cases where you need anonymity, it's like now, cause we're not going to know who it is. So we can't know whose copyright it is. Yep. So you've got to give us the copyright and we're going to destroy all records of, or we're not going to even get the records of, of who these people are. So we have a whole set of like protocols for that now, but. I mean, I worked at places that had law collections that were sealed and of Mm -hmm. course the archivists peak, but like no one else is gonna. I mean, like
2: patron privacy and stuff is like part of our professional ethics, right?
0: Yeah. And, and another thing, I think we've mentioned this before, but like very few states have archival privacy laws. So like if it's just on us. Yeah. If, like, the government comes and says, like, can we see this? There's not really, like, any law we can point to. So, like, this this happens with, like, pol- like, politicians, too. Like, people start going through, like, the Clintons donated materials to their alma mater or whatever. They start poking around in the files. And it's like, yeah, I mean, don't... I don't understand why we take politicians' papers. Most of it's just fucking junk. And it's always a huge amount of fucking boxes. And it's like, no one's ever going to look through it. And they don't want anyone looking through it. It's like, then throw it away. I don't know. Send it to the National Archives. They're going to put it in a cave.
2: I have a tangent about the National Archives.
0: How they rock because they don't do any work. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They're just a pure bureaucracy. (laughs) That the
2: tweet... From Senator John Fetterman going, I figure if I take up vaping and grabbing the hog during a live musical, they'll make me a folk hero because it's coming mm-hmm. from a federal politician going to the National Archives.
0: Oh, that's sick. <laughs> it took me so long to figure out why everyone was talking about Beetlejuice, like a week <laughs> before anyone told me why. Listen, public sex is is,
2: is cool. Uh, fuck her, though. But people going, she should be in jail for public sex. I'm like, but not though. Are <laughs> so you listening to yourself? It's, where people, it's not as
0: cool when you're not a teenager because you've got a house.
2: Yeah, I mean, she sucks, but
0: yeah, it is. It is very teen behavior. Whom's amongst us hasn't fondled
2: someone in a in a theater? You know.
0: Yeah, but I also lived at home. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's not as cool when you're like 50.
2: Public sex is know. cool.
0: I don't care. Uh, but
2: yeah, no, grabbing the hog is now in the National Archives. Thank grabbing you for the hog.
0: I mean, I'm sure Nixon said something worse.
2: <laughs> anyway, continue.
0: <laughs> so where was I? Wall Street Journal. Let's Ugh. back up to January 2023, beginning of this year. Mutter Museum is listed among U.S. institutions still holding native remains in a ProPublica investigation. This is also reported in the Philly Inquirer. And there's a quote here. This is the only quote from Mutter Museum. Uh, upon my arrival last year, so it had been like three months before, four months before. The museum committed to re-engaging this process and so have conducted additional research, additional outreach to known tribes. To date, we have successfully repatriated two sets of remains and we have received three additional requests as a result of our outreach. So she's talking about a process that started like 40 years ago. So the museum has been really dragging its feet on this shit. But let's talk about the petition. This petition was way fucking longer than I remember. And so I couldn't even like put in all the bullet points. So if you want to jump in with part of the petition that you thought was more interesting, I just picked the parts that I thought was interesting. Right at the top, I'm assuming these are in order of importance. So that's why I kind of went from the top. Kind of the top thing was repost all YouTube uh, videos as well as the Memento Mutter website. The removal of these uh, videos makes museum content inaccessible for everyone unable to physically visit the museum. True. But we can't digitize everything that's physically impossible for most cultural institutions. Uh, While there have been claims of surveying for feedback and wider discussions, these have yet to materialize. Also fair, took until September, and these haven't happened yet. They're going to happen in October. And content has been absent for months, which it still is. So all of these are fair points. They are annoyed at the speed at which changes are being reversed. But I think the admin was very aware that this wasn't going to happen. They weren't going to walk it back unless they got fired. Let's see. They talk about how Kate Quinn thinks the museum should be less gross. Not a real quote here. Dr. Irons, in the interest of reassessing, quote, reassessing how the museum moves forward. OK, that's what an admin is supposed to say. Uh, Quinn believes the mission of the college and the motor is to facilitate health and well. Um, this is not the mission of the college or the museum. Okay. They also talk about disdain for the membership, public visitors in the collection, and mention the thing about subject matter expertise to contextualize the information that this is uh, offensive and runs counter to the mission of museum college. And it's dangerous. Reserving medical information displays solely for medical professionals is elitist. So they've kind of conflated a couple statements there. So I didn't like this petition. I didn't sign it.
2: Yeah, no, it I was didn't bad. promote
0: it. It was it was too rushed and it was very long. But did you have any other things from the petition that stood out?
2: No, my main thing is talking about like the most recent article and one of the points brought up in it. My my main comment about the petition was that my original statement back in the DESSA episode that it was just a bunch of like cringy Gen X goths who were mad. Again, sorry,
0: our Gen X fans mm-hmm. and friends.
2: Yes, we love you.
0: So this was kind of just funny, uh, but there was clearly a PR push in like August for pro-Director Quinn uh, stories. It was basically, they came out the exact same day in the New York Times and the Guardian, which is like the UK New York Times. So they're both liberal rags. They came out the same day. They covered basically the same stuff. They had no new information, except that they were very kind to Director Quinn. (laughs) It says Quinn's task, 13 unnamed people, medical historians, bioethicists, disability advocates, and members of the community with providing feedback on the digital collection. And uh, she's, they start calling it a post-mortem, which I just think is funny. Um, they it, just it's, actually on brand. Really, it's really good. Actually, it's really
2: good. I was like, all right, points. I can see this one good choice. One good choice, calling it a post-mortem. I was like, yeah, Every everything in history and the entire world and the entire history of the universe has all come together in this moment for
0: that perfect title, (laughs) you know? Uh, my opinion on Quinn is that she's a capable museums exhibit specialist and knows what she's talking about when it comes to museum exhibits and everything Mm. else is just whether or not she's a capable admin and PR person.
2: And, and is she capable or well-suited for this collection?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, she's doing a lot of stuff that I would do, just not the exact same, same way too. I would do it.
2: Yeah, same. Exactly. That's my whole thing is like, they're doing the right thing. They're just doing it wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, because yeah. like she was saying, like the digital collection was dog shit. And I'm like, yeah, most, most of them are. So that's fair. But I just like highlighted some of the, the, the framing. It was like blowback to Miss Quinn's ethical review was ferocious, panicky rumors on social media. Dr. Irons, a physician who treats children with rare genetic diseases. And I just put in brackets, helps kids. Fuck them kids. Lee Edelman time. These were puff pieces. Like, they were so fucking funny.
2: I listened to the Weird Signal uh, podcast episode interview with Lee Edelman today, so I'm, I'm on it now.
0: Nice. It does mention that uh, Quinn is, was a director of exhibits and public programs at Penn Museum, so that's why I say like she's experienced, she knows what she's doing. Yeah. Quinn was surprised the mother had no ethics policy or human remains policy, things you probably definitely should have. Yes. Quinn is trying to keep ahead of rapidly changing legal and ethical landscape by doing the first audit since the 1940s. And then Good. she just says, yeah. Robert Hicks sucks. <laughs> yeah. Which was like unnecessary, Plenty. but whatever. It's funny. That was the guy who cut the mutter out of his will.
2: I think I think we should bring back uh, academic
0: beef, you know. I didn't it didn't go anywhere, back. it just became worse.
2: Yeah, this is funny though.
0: Bring this back. Yeah. So now the most current plans, most recent, there will be a two-year public comment. So the museum, the college of physicians will host public discussions, workshops, and exhibitions, and post online videos addressing the issues of consent and ethics. The first public event will be a town hall-style discussion October 17th. And the College of Physicians received a $285,000 grant from Pew Center for Arts and Heritage for the engagement project called Postmortem Mutter Museum.
1: I hope whoever was the one that said that, who came up with that title got a raise. Yeah.
0: You got to come up with something. Yeah, I mean... You're writing grants all day. You gotta get. You gotta have fun. Yeah. So
2: my um, a thing I really wanted to pull out of this most recent article that was in the, is this the Philly Inquirer? Yeah. Is um most recent this this paragraph that says, some of these critics say the lack of records of explicit consent, and so there was like a a, a statistic that it was like ten percent or less of the things in the museum had explicit consent about being in
0: there. One percent.
2: Right? Uh, oh, it's less than one percent. They've gone through ten
0: percent. Less than one percent. Quinn thinks when oh. the audit is completed, it'll be three point five percent.
2: Gotcha. So just because, uh, so some of these critics say the lack of records of explicit consent does not necessarily mean the anatomical specimens were obtained unethically. This is true, and even in cases in which they were. The critics say, and this is the part that I think that I I I also said this in our last episode on this. This is part of medical history and should be aired. Uh, Quinn says post mortem will attempt to do just that. My thing is okay, but how? Because this is actually what the problem is. That all of this together is that like there's this legacy of this museum of how it has obtained its specimens. Right, And now it's like, how do we reckon with that history? What do you do about it? Do you obfuscate it? And by obfuscating, not actually do anything about it? Or do you talk about it, but are you talking about it and bringing attention to it in the actual right way? Right. So I'll actually be really curious because I know um, I saw that they're like working with like a lot of scholars and experts, especially people who talk about like displays of like remains of uh, like black bodies, which that phrase I've heard a lot of criticism of, of black bodies, because it's really dehumanizing. So like maybe academic in this academic talk
0: that was never meant to escape academia. Yeah,
2: exactly. Like it was meant to be this like, specific thing. But um, but like, you know, people whose whole gig it is to talk about, okay, what do you do with the remains of oppressed and marginalized people, right? That, I think is like my whole thing with this, is I don't think they should erase the legacy of the where they got a lot of their specimens, but what they do with that is uh, going to be tricky.
0: I thought it was weird that there was no explicit mention of indigenous representation.
2: Yeah, because they they mentioned the remains, but
0: not... <laughs> Yeah, but they mentioned twice that they will have an expert on displays of Black people's remains, but not Indigenous people's remains. So I
2: think they're just trying to repatriate the Indigenous remains as much as they can.
0: Yeah, I mean, legally they have to.
2: Yeah, so.
1: Well, one, one thing I noticed in, I don't remember which article, was the collection of human skulls that somebody, like some doctor or researcher used to help discredit, what is it, phrenology?
2: Yeah, which is good.
1: <laughs> which which is a good thing, but again, there's no consent for those skulls. So I can see that's probably where, you know, I would think the why they're putting the emphasis on, like, Black people's remains maybe mm-hmm. is because that p- collection in particular is, like, seems more famous than maybe the rest of museum. I don't know. That's the impression I got.
0: Mm, that makes sense. Plus the legal framework's different. Yeah. Did you ever read um that book about Henrietta Lax?
2: No, I never did actually.
1: I've had that on my list for like years. It was a yeah. it was a one book one community at some point yeah. at one of the libraries I worked. So I had the opportunity and I absolutely did not take it.
0: Yeah, it was the one book one community when I was at USF. So they had all the freshmen read it when I was in library school, and I was like, all right, I'll read it. Yeah, so in uh, The Immortal Life of Henry Deluxe, that's what it's called. So mm-hmm. that one really goes into how informed consent was like not really a thing until like, the 50s. And so there's just no uh, precedent for a lot of modern medical ethics uh, because none of it— Existed, And so it talks about, it also talks about something that I actually believe, which is that Johns Hopkins abducted black children for experimentation uh, because children disappeared. And that's one of those things that's like, that's a conspiracy theory. Black people are crazy. They're making this up. That's always something that like 20, 30, 50 years later, it's like, yeah, that actually happened. So my money's on that being a true story. So, or that someone was kidnapping them, killing them and giving the bodies to Johns Hopkins. I mean, that's also possible, but From what I remember, there was no follow-up on that lead, but I believe that. You mentioned something that got me on to Henrietta Lacks. I guess it really was just consent that no one, doctors didn't think to ask consent for procedures, never mind like just taking cells and stuff and then growing samples of them all over the place. What Quinn said is they knew that 10 people absolutely wanted to be in this building and on display out of 6,600. We certainly know a vast number of cases. People who did not at all give consent to be here, and many of them are on display today. They've reviewed about 10%, and of that less than 1% of the people who make up the specimens gave their informed and enthusiastic consent. I think it's kind of funny, informed and enthusiastic. I always think of that as like sex consent talk, but okay, we're just going to use that for... I, I really
2: I dislike the conflation of sexual consent with other kinds of consent and like the language being merged to all be the same thing because people have been using that just to say I'm uncomfortable in public and using the language of sexual consent to make it almost seem like they're being assaulted um, and that kind of same language is now being used to like fire teachers for teaching people things that make them uncomfortable. So I think as a society, we should move away from conflating those kinds of consent in our language. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk.
0: Ten experts will uh, will guide the two-year postmortem project uh, in collaboration with mother staffers, including a disability activist, an ethicist, medical history experts, community engagement specialists, and someone who studies how museums display black bodies. So that was the list of people that I was thinking of, uh, which I think this list was mentioned like twice in the same article or I just read two different articles that came out at the same time, because there were two. There was one in Inquirer, but I'm just usually the Inquirer one. Quinn's gonna ask about the Cabinet of Curiosities design, if it's still appropriate or if it's outdated and should be modernized. And then it went back to And then it went back to Ann Hoskins, who was the person who I believe did the petition of protect the mutter, and that they plan to attend the town hall session to see whether museum officials will address the negative criticism they've received. And made a good point saying the town hall forum will make feedback easier to police, but harder to ignore. So that's true. It will make feedback easier to police. But I think, uh, you know, that's what an administrator would always have done instead of letting this run out of hand is just shut down the external exhibits and start doing a review like they're doing.
2: Yeah, the, the cabinet of curiosities thing, I think, is interesting because like while I I kind of like leaning into the morbidity and sort of celebrating not not celebrating but like you know not sanitizing the reality of having a body and illness and like kind of like philly's weird right and if so of course it's gonna have a weird museum and i i i kind of like the sort of goth morbid morbidity of it it's very like it could be a sort of like death positive thing but it also very quickly turns into ripley's believe it or not and so i think it's like i would love to keep it weird and spooky in the most ethical way possible but what how can that like heart like how can that sort of heart of what this coll- what people like about this collection of sort of facing the reality of a lot of the fucked up things that happen to bodies, in a way that doesn't try to like obfuscate it. How do you keep that spirit? I think is like what really interests me most about 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 all of this. I don't know what y'all think.
1: Yeah, no, I'm I'm pretty much on the same page. Like hearing the, you know, it should be about well being and health. I'm like. And that I can see why people are pissed off that they don't want the museum to become that because there is yeah that like sort of morbidity and acknowledgement of like death and the the weird ways that biology goes wrong like I think that's a totally normal fascination but yeah, I but I think that the whole refocusing on well-being and health, if that is indeed the direction the museum is going to go is is pretty much a cop out it's it's a way to not have to like confront. Those things, like Jay, you were just saying, having to actually really dig in and figure out what's the most balanced ethical way to keep that sort of feel that is why the museum is beloved, but also like in an ethical like way that you can continue doing moving forward. So,
2: like if they keep the Cabinet of Curiosities. Have, like, what it means to be a cabinet of curiosities and the history of that as part of it as well. Like, I feel like this museum has the opportunity to set an example, right?
1: That's what I was going to say.
2: This is how you reckon with what it means to be a museum in America because all museums in America are soaked in blood. Yep. All of them. So, what do you do with that?
1: <laughs> what do you do with that? Well, and that's why I thought it was interesting. Like, I wonder if that's part of the reason why they're moving so slow and not necessarily responding to a lot of this criticism because they could really be setting sort of a precedent or an example and making it into a whole two year in depth, necessarily slow and methodical process. Like, I don't. I don't disagree with that approach. Like I know. They just got bad PR. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like a lot of people are always like, you know, Oh, this needs to happen now. And if you delay doing it, that means you don't really want to do it. And it's like, no, there is actually a lot of good, a lot of good reason to, to not just turn around and, and do something because it sounds like the good thing to do at the time. So, you know,
2: and this isn't a like, you know, cause sometimes it's like, things move slow because it's like gets gets tied up in bureaucracy and is kind of an excuse to not actually do the immediate or direct action kind of thing where it's like, no, there's something that we need to do now, but we're getting tied up in bureaucracy. This, There is no such thing as a library emergency, you know, and this is a museum but I think the point stands. I think they're allowed to take their time on this. They just need better PR, I swear to God. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I don't actually I don't actually have a whole lot like against the way that the museum seems to be moving forward. Like again, I'm not like a curator or an archivist in any way, so complete outsider's perspective, but like it seems like they're actually trying to approach it in a thoughtful way that could possibly help other museums grappling with the same issues moving forward, hence the Pew grant and everything. So, like mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I
2: think there's a discussion to be had about doing that in a reactionary way of like, we're doing the right thing, but we're being reactionary or overcorrecting about it. Like, I think that's a discussion to be had. But I would rather that side of that coin than the other side of that coin where it's like, you're not doing the right thing, you know?
1: Purposefully avoiding doing the right thing.
2: I'd rather they just do the right thing morally.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how this how the post-mortem project will play out and how it will affect similar institutions in the future.
0: Yeah, I think it's a good idea for them to take their time and Mm -hmm. kind of keep the whole project open. I'm trying to find something I was posting about. I got distracted looking for Bataille stuff that I was looking for. Because the Cabinet of Curiosities thing is very much like... What kind of experience do we have um facing death? And there was this thing that
2: Yeah, I started listening to the Bataille episodes of um Acid Horizon.
0: <laughs> there's a thing that Ruby from Postponies mentioned, which was like this sort of carnival of limit experiences that someone proposed, and she thought it was Bataille, but I can't find it. But anyway, he had this whole idea that you would it was him or someone else, like in his in his area. I had the idea of like an absolute limit experience. And so it'd be this carnival where there'd be like live executions and viscera on the floor. And it would uh, be like an experience that you could, you know, kind of story of the eye stuff where it talks about like goring and murder and all kinds of horrible things happening. Hellraiser shit. And so I was trying to find that and I got distracted. Story of the I eye was, has a lot of piss in it. Yeah. Yeah. But someone on Blue Sky was talking about pre-conquest or early, con- like, not quite conquest, I guess, but post-contact Mesoamerican codices and the Library of Congress. And so mm-hmm. I started clicking around on some of them. And the ethics of, like, how things were moved around is very funny because, obviously, these were uh, Mayan pe- like uh, uh, books, manuscripts, calendars. And they were bought by, they ended up in like the French National Library and then they were stolen and is currently in Mexico. And Mexican authorities are like, we're not giving it back, which is the correct position to take. It's good. Correct. So it's just, uh, it's very, but in the Library of Congress, there was like this description. It's like the precious manuscript was subsequently stolen and is currently in Mexico. It's like, what do you mean subsequently stolen? Like it was... There was still, like, I, I put the the uh, Princess Bride thing. Where it's like, you're trying to kidnap what I've rightfully stolen. Mm-hmm. Mexican authorities who are refusing to return it have entrusted it to – return it is a funny word there – have entrusted it to the country's National Institute of Anthropology and History.
1: Like Just give up France. Just let it go. Like in France.
0: Yeah. But there are some really cool um, – early contact codices in um, in the library of congress if you want to look at them unfortunately a lot of a lot of those got burned by the spanish so we don't have them anymore so there's a lot of i think we have some pre-contact books but not many i don't know i remember watching um, a video about plain sign language and writing systems in pre-contact americas and you know how spanish burned a lot of books so we know that there was a lot of writing going on, but we act as if these are preliterate people. But anyway, the whole, like, I think I, I wrote that down when Jay was talking about how we have like, a libraries and the archives and museums have a role in this trail of ownership and rationalization of ownership and legitimation of, of who gets to own what.
2: Yeah. I mean, like when a thing that like archives and special collections like deeply cares about is like provenance just tracking how something has moved through hands throughout time. Like who has owned this? Right? I say
0: deeply cares, but like constantly loses this information too.
2: That is true. But like, you know, we're in like some um, uh, schemas, like that is a tag, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is provenance. Like that's a, a, a thing that you record. Yeah. Like I understand that it's important to, for authenticity, but even then, like talking about authenticity it's like i don't know it's interesting what we care about in our metadata um like what goes into and like there's different kinds of metadata right like what goes into administrative metadata what goes into descriptive metadata what is metadata meant for the public to see what metadata gets indexed what metadata is just for, you know, bookkeeping like, does the public need to see the provenance?
0: Yeah. I don't know. It's just a question of, does the Mark field print and stuff like that. But yeah, I've definitely had collections where I'm worried about the, be provenance or like migrating from one digital system to another. I'm worried about notes getting lost. So Mm -hmm. what I had them do was keep a notes document that then became an item in that collection. So there'd be like Mm -hmm. a photo collection and there'd be like a PDF in that collection. That's like, here are the notes on what we changed or like like what we fixed. Yeah. Because it was just like, I don't want to lose any of this information because we were basically migrating from another platform we're going to get rid of this platform. So whatever we don't preserve now is going to be, you know, whatever was administrative backend stuff is going to be gone. So if we change the numbering system, if we change titles, you know, cause sometimes you'll have like 50 things that are titled the same thing. Cause someone was just mm-hmm. like, we just got to process this. So if we change titles, we'll just mention that we changed a bunch of bakery retitled or reprocessed it. It's usually not that long, but we did, we did put a lot of processing notes when we were migrating. Yeah. Because uh, I've just seen how bad provenance data can get lost. When people mm-hmm. don't care about it and like, you know, it happens there are people who just aren't very diligent about that kind of stuff. They're just like, yes, yeah. we'll take it. And they don't do good paperwork.
2: Oh, um, the other sort of example I like to use about like our role in like the obfuscation of the history around an item is that the University of Virginia, where it was um, university archives documents around a suicide of a grad student who uh who got mccarthy basically um you mm-hmm. know where they basically said everything but he was a confirmed bachelor in his obituary after he committed suicide and there was like a some sort of meeting with university admin after that was all redacted and um, and uh, I found this out because there's this great book called Queer Philologies by Jeffrey Masten, uh, Sex, Language, and Affect in Shakespeare's Time. And this student had been someone who studied like the people who go like this person compiled this folio and this folio, but this person compiled this folio of like Shakespeare's work. And a lot of those people also worked in wars as cryptographers. Um, And uh, this person, like the author was like looking at this person's work and like saw this and this author is gay and is like, hey, I know what this means. Uh, And when they requested this information from the University of Virginia, because it was like in their catalog, right? It was in a finding aid and everything. Uh, When they looked back, uh, they were denied being able to see it. And then when they looked back, it um, had been removed from the public catalog completely. This book was written less than 10 years ago. I think so. the University of Virginia, within the past 10-15 years, is still going, sorry, you can't see this, to the point of removing a record from the public catalog. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's shitty, you know? Um, and they probably weren't the ones who made that decision. You know, university you know, admin probably was. But, like, we play a role in the obfuscation of horrible shit that institutions do.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean... Fucking yearbooks at universities, those have, have been taken mm-hmm. down left and right because they're like, oh shit, everyone's in blackface like more than 15 years ago. Uh, so I know a lot of I, th- this became like a whole discussion point because so many places were just taken down. They're their digitized yearbooks, especially flagships because like like all the politicians thing. go there.
2: Yeah, it's like this discomfort thing. This is also criticism I have often of the like harmful language statements is like people assuming what will cause harm and what won't and choosing removal and obfuscation to like it's like the freedom from versus freedom to kind of thing and so just like oh well like do we deracialize that article talks about this a lot it's like if we just remove our mistakes if we just cover it up if nobody sees it if we just fix it right away instead of actually reckoning with these legacies Right. Like removing discomfort isn't actually the answer, I think. Thank you for coming to uh, the sequel to my tech talk. (laughs) That guy is like still maybe a sex pest. I think there was like a thing that came out that they couldn't substantiate all the accusations against him. But that doesn't um, make me feel good, feel better. So,
0: (laughs) you know. I was right to never stop using them as drops. My drops have been vindicated in the court of law.
2: <clears throat> Layer legal drops now. We can't
0: cancel the drops.
1: You're going to get DMCA'd on your
0: soundboard. I think that's, we've covered it. We'll come back whenever there's more. I've still got my Google alert going. So if anything big happens, we can always follow up. I tried having a Google alert for LexisNexis um, to see like what cop shit Elsevier gets up to. And because it's all like software for landlords and cops, people are just writing like a million AI generated articles that are getting picked up by my Google alert. So they're like incoherent articles that say absolutely nothing. And I had to get rid of the alert because I have, I don't know what keywords to use to filter out those because like the business world of, of just making fake articles is all just the things so it's all garbage, but. Normally Google Alerts is good for filtering out bullshit because it's not Google search. It must be running on an older version of Google search that still fucking works. All right, good night.